The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate and study, assimilate the Word of God so that we can advance to spiritual maturity. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the option to use God's grace recovery system from 1 John 1, 9, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's Father, we do thank You so much that we can gather together as a body of believers, that we have Your Holy Spirit not only indwelling us, but teaching us. He fills us. He helps us to understand Your Word, and He produces fruit and spiritual maturity in our lives. Now, Father, we pray as we look at these episodes in the Old Testament that we may properly understand the application to our own lives and see its significance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we saw in our survey of the Old Testament that God had called out Abram to make a new nation. This is God's new initiative in grace in the context of the revolt against God's mandate in the Noahic covenant to go forth throughout the earth, multiply, fill the earth, and the uh, mankind, humanity, did not do that. They gathered together at the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. And in that context of the revolt of humanity, God not only judges the human race by scattering them through the division of languages, but then He works this new initiative of grace by calling out Abram. Through Abram, He was going to create a new nation. Ultimately, as we have seen, this is to be a nation of priests, a priest nation that all of the nations, or through whom all of the nations on the earth will have a relationship with God. By the time we come to the book of Exodus, we find that this nation that God has called out in Genesis chapter 12 is in slavery in Egypt. Why is it that this has come about? What uh, we might ask went wrong. Instead of seeing this new nation that God calls out through Abraham, instead of seeing that new nation advance triumphantly, what we see is a reverse trend. We see the collapse of the family. We see them end up in Egypt. Now, if you were reading this for the first time as a Jew in the plains of Moab prior to entering into the land of Canaan, think about the kinds of questions that would be going through your mind. Here you are poised to enter this land that God has promised to give you. He promised it to Abraham some 600 years earlier. 
You might be asking, why has it taken so long? You might ask, why is it that if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lived in the land, why did they leave the land? Why did God remove them from the land of Canaan? Not only did God remove us, but why did He take us down into Egypt and make us slaves for 400 years in Egypt serving the pharaohs? And that is one of the reasons that Moses has written this is to demonstrate to the nation God's sovereign care throughout this period. How God has preserved them, how God took them to Egypt, and Egypt served as sort of an incubator for the infant nation so that that infant nation could grow from about 70 individuals who went down from Canaan to Egypt with, with uh, Jacob. There were approximately 70. And when they left, some 480 years later, there were between 2 and 3 million. So Moses is answering that question. Now, if we just read through these episodes from Genesis chapter 12 down through Genesis 50 in a somewhat superficial manner, then we might determine that, well, the reason that God took them down to Egypt was simply to protect them and to provide for them when this massive famine came in the Middle East. All of that area around the Mediterranean suffered this uh, incredible seven-year famine, and after two years, food had run out in the land of Canaan. Jacob and the family had no food, and the only place to go was the breadbasket of the world, which was Egypt at that time. And of course, unbeknownst to them at the time, Joseph, the son who had been sold into slavery, was uh, elevated to a position second only to Pharaoh, and he was put in charge of all of the resources because of God's sovereign work in Joseph's life. And if you've read the stories, and you ought to be reading along while we go through this because I don't have time to go through all the details of all the stories. I'm trying to help you understand the overview and what the theological point is, so to speak, that, mo- that everybody knows, should know the story from Sunday school of uh, Joseph's coat of many colors, how his brother sold him to the Midianites, who then took him down as a slave, and they took him down to Egypt, sold him as a slave. He was a slave to Potiphar. He was uh, accused falsely by Potiphar's wife of trying to seduce her. Because, and in fact, she was trying to seduce him, and he ran from her. In jealousy, she charged him with rape. He was put in prison. God worked through uh, several different events to bring him to Pharaoh's notice through dreams that he had. And in those dreams, God was telling Pharaoh that there would be 14 years of seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so because of that, Joseph was elevated to a position of prime minister to take care of the nation and to set up sort of a savings bank and storage centers for grain during the seven years of plenty to provide for the seven years of famine. God was working in and through all of that in order to protect and preserve the nation. And this is a fantastic lesson that no matter how bad things might get, no matter how much we fail God, God does not desert us, number one, and God's grace is never dependent upon who we are or what we have done. And I think that very few things demonstrate this, like the episodes concerning the uh, family of Jacob in the last few chapters of Genesis. So when we look at this, we're going to see God's sovereign control and how He preserves the nation. Now, one of the things that we should notice when we come to the text is that there is this tremendous contrast that takes place 
between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and the twelve sons of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all devoted to Yahweh. They all have a high spiritual sense. They have a deep and profound sense of who they are, of their relationship to the Abrahamic covenant and what God is doing in their life. Now, it, it, it sort of dilutes itself from each generation. Abraham, we see, is the father of the nation. He is the exemplar, the example throughout the Bible of faith. And then there's Isaac. And Isaac is still a fairly strong believer, but he is not as strong as his father. Jacob is even less strong spiritually than, than Abraham or Isaac. So you could think of it as a sort of gas going out of a balloon or as dilution and the spiritual dynamic that is present in Abraham uh, becomes diluted in Isaac, diluted even more in Jacob. And by the time you get to Jacob's 12 boys, you just wonder if they ever heard of Yahweh and of the Abrahamic covenant and what God was trying to do with them. So by the time you, you go through Isaac and Jacob, there's a bit of a spiritual leak and then you just have a flat tire when you come to the 12 boys. And all of this is just background to see what goes on during this time. First thing we should notice if you read through the chapters related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that wherever the first three generations go, they build an altar in Canaan and then they make proclamation in the name of Yahweh. They are concerned with witnessing. This is God's evangelistic program, God's missionary outreach to the entire human race through Abraham and they recognize this. Uh, the altar, when they go to a place, they build an altar, and that altar is symbolic of their spiritual purpose in the land. They understand they are there to represent God. Now, remember when we studied the early chapters of Genesis, we saw that this was set up according to the uh, pattern of a what was called a suzerain vassal treaty. Now, in that suzerain vassal treaty, the suzerain, who is the great lord, the great king, and in the secular context, this would be the king of a great empire, and they would conquer various nations or city-states, and then he would enter into a contract with those subservient kings. And he would say, as long as you do what I tell you to do, I will bless you and bless your nation. If you disobey me or you violate our agreement, then I'm going to send in the military, and I'm going to punish you and wipe you out and take you off the throne. There would be curses and blessings on it. But the idea was that this, this underlord, this vassal king, was to represent the great lord, the great Susan. This is the background, this is the imagery of Genesis 1, and 27. Man is sent forth to be God's representative on the earth. And they failed, they disobeyed God, Adam disobeyed God. We have the fall, we have all of the collapse between the fall and the flood and the deterioration, the rebellion of man against God, and then God's judgment at the flood. And after the flood, God's grace once again reestablishes His covenant with Noah, gives Noah the same basic conditions he gave Adam, go forth, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. But there were some changes because of the fall. So man is still designed, even though he is no longer in the perfect image of God and it's marred because of sin, man is still to go forth and represent God on the earth. He is still the vice regent of God on the earth. And then once again, man disobeys through the generations that lead up to the Tower of Babel. And now God judges him again and he comes in and gives this new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which is modeled on a royal grant, land grant covenant in the ancient world. And God is restoring this image idea. Abraham now and his descendants are to be 
this representative on the earth. That's part of the background. So they understand this dynamic. And when they go in, when they're living as um, basically Bedouins and pilgrims in the land, they don't have a permanent home, they're living in tents, traveling, moving about in this land that God has promised to give them, they understand clearly that their role, their purpose is to represent God to the pagan nations surrounding them. And so that's part of the function of building an altar. Now, if we look at a couple of passages, well, let's just review where we've been in the Old, Old Testament. We have the law, which is where we're studying, the Mosaic law, uh, or the books of the law written by Moses, the five books of the Pentateuch from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Then we have the historical books that cover the conquest under Joshua up to 931 B.C. when the nation splits in a rebellion between the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. 722 B.C., the northern nation goes out. 586 B.C., the southern nation of Judah is defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. And then you have your books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which cover the post-exilic period. Job, Psalms, Solomon, major prophets and minor prophets are all written within the framework of the historical books from Genesis through Esther. The verse in Exodus 19.5 and 6 tells us the main idea of the Old Testament, that is God's work in one nation, God's work in the nation Israel to bring about a priest kingdom so that it is through them that the entire human race can have an intermediary with God. And of course, that ultimately is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As we look at Genesis, we see that there are these four events and four people that organize the book. The four events are the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. We've covered that already. Now, as we come to the last four people, we're going to summarize this and see how God uses them to establish the nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and then uh, Joseph. And there is this gradual dilution spiritually. We saw the timeline last time to understand where we are in terms of history. We're looking at B.C., so every, the numbers get larger as you go backward. 1000 B.C. Uh, is the marker here. And just prior to that, in 966 B.C., or just after 1000, rather, in 966 B.C. is when Solomon dedicated the temple. 480 years between the temple dedication and Exodus in 1446 B.C. 430 years before the Exodus to the time that Jacob entered Egypt. This is the focal point this morning. is this time period of the patriarchs. Jacob enters Egypt in 1876 B.C. Abram is born about 2166 B.C. So the time period that we're looking at here is roughly between 2100 B.C. and about 1850 B.C. Genesis 12.1, Genesis, uh, God told Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And then this last phrase is really a command in the Hebrew, and you shall be a blessing. Now, they understood this mandate, that they were to be a blessing to the nation. This is the point I've been making. They understand their role as a representative, and that God has promised to bless the Gentiles around them, to bless all these Canaanite nations, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, all these people that make up roughly the, the um, culture 
of Canaan. They're various ethnic groups, but they all have the same culture. And God says that it is through you that they will be blessed. Here's a map that gives us the basic area that we're, we're studying. And Abraham, when we talk about his first altar, it's right down in this area, right just near Jerusalem, when he is first in the land. Now, let's remind ourselves of the overall line of the seed here. Abram, Abraham married Sarah. Sarah is barren. They're both advanced in years. It's not until Abraham's a hundred years old before he finally has a son. And in the meantime, they try to solve their problem through their own efforts. So Sarah suggested that Abraham take her handmaid. Her, so this was common practice. Seems odd to us, but it was common practice in the ancient world uh, at that time for the wife, if the wife was barren, could not have a child, that she would give uh, her slave to her husband, and they would have a child, and that child would be raised up as the heir. So they're trying to solve God's problem for him and provide a solution. God has told them that they would have a son from Abraham's own loins and that Sarah would be the mother. Well, Abraham and Hagar have a son, Ishmael, father of most of the Arabs or many of the Arabs, and hence we have the origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Finally, the promised seed comes, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have twin sons. Esau is the elder. Jacob is the one through whom the seed will go. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are regenerate. They are believers. The seed of Israel must be through the regenerate son. Then Jacob takes two wives. First, Leah. He's duped by Laban, his father-in-law, into taking Leah. She has a veil on. He really wanted to marry Rachel. Had to work seven years for Leah and then seven years more for Rachel. Through Leah, he has four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Rachel gets a little jealous. She gives Jacob, she hasn't been able to have children. She's barren. There's a tremendous illustration here of the barrenness of these women. Sarah and Rachel, others in the Old Testament, all foreshadow the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that it is in this dead womb that God brings forth life. That's the point of all this barrenness. It's not that there's something special about barrenness. There's about seven women in the Bible who are barren, and there's a point that God is making. And the point is that it is He and He alone that brings forth life where there is death, and it all foreshadows and pictures regeneration. So she, she's barren. She gets impatient, sends in her maid, Bilhah, and Bilhah gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah gets jealous, so she sends in her maid, Zilpah. Zilpah has two sons, Gad and Asher. Doesn't this just sound like something you'd watch on a soap opera? Then Leah has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And finally, God opens Rachel's womb, and she has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Frankly, Joseph and Benjamin are the only ones in the whole lot who seem to have any kind of spiritual sensitivity, Joseph more than Benjamin. Joseph is the only one who really has a heart for God. Now, this is who we're going to be talking about mostly this morning. It's Abraham, Jacob, and the sons who are the progenitors of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, we saw that in the third verse, Abraham, Avram at this point, is commanded to be a blessing. So that's the purpose of building the altars. He goes forth. The very next verse says, So Abram went forth 
as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions. Remember, he was to leave his family, so he's got incomplete obedience to God. took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated. And the persons which they had acquired in Haran, they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. And then the Moses puts an editorial comment in here just to remind us. He says, now the Canaanite was then in the land. Now he's talking to the Jews in 1400 B.C. He says, okay, the Canaanites had the land at the time that Abram was given the land. Remember that. Don't lose sight of that. They, Abram is, in our culture, what happens so often in the church is somebody gets saved and then they go join a church and they get involved in the local Christian community and within 18 months they don't have any non-Christian friends anymore. They become isolated. So you see, when God calls out Abram, He doesn't send him off to a monastery. He sends him to the midst of the most degenerate, perverted, immoral, anti-God culture on the planet. See, God has a totally different perspective and a totally different set of priorities than the average self-righteous, legalistic Christian. He wants to change the world, and the only way to do that is to put people out in it. They aren't though, as we will see, this is one of the major themes here, not to be influenced by that surrounding culture, but they are in turn to impact that surrounding culture. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. So this is the first mention. He builds an altar. And then it says in verse 8, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. This is about uh, five miles north of Jerusalem in the ridge country there. There he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. Now this is an interesting phrase. It is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean that, that he sang hymns to God it doesn't mean that he prayed to God. It is a Hebrew idiom and it means he made proclamation in the name of Yahweh. Martin Luther translated the, even today, the Bible that you, you would get in Germany, the German Bible, was translated by Martin Luther. And Martin Luther translated this, he preached throughout the land. And that may be a little strong, but it comes pretty close to the main idea that is here. And that is that, that Abram made proclamation. He took a stand in the midst of this pagan culture for the God of heaven and earth and continuously made proclamation, taught doctrine, and witnessed to the surrounding cultures around him. He is functioning now as the representative of God to this pagan culture. It is comparable to the believer's responsibility as an ambassador for Christ to be a witness to the world. So we see Abram fulfilling this particular responsibility. Now remember, he is surrounded by the Canaanites. They're involved in Baal worship, which is the phallic cult, fertility worship. And in the midst of this, he is going to continuously be a, a uh, one who proclaims the gospel. Remember, he's commissioned to be a blessing. He understands this. 
and he is self-consciously going out to fulfill the mission that God has given him. Now, Isaac does the same thing. In Genesis 26-25, we read concerning Isaac, that so he built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So once again, we see Isaac doing the same thing. He understands the covenant. He understands his role as a representative of God and that he is to be a blessing to the pagan culture that is surrounding him. So he continues that role, as does uh, Jacob. Genesis 33:20. Jacob erects an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, one of the things that you should note that is not mentioned by Genesis 33:20 is what? It does not say that he made proclamation in the name of the Lord. So you see this deterioration, this dilution of the spiritual dynamics among the patriarchs. <coughs> now, Jacob still is concerned. He's still fulfilling a witness, and he is building this altar where he goes throughout the land to fulfill that role as a representative of God to the pagans. So from this, we see that the patriarchs had a clear sense of their purpose. They understood that God had called them out, that God was performing a unique work through them. And as a result of this concern for their purpose, that is to be a witness for God, they had a sense of unity. This sense of purpose gave them a sense of unity. Now that has application for the church today. One of the most nauseating things, I think, that has happened in Christianity in the last 30 years is all of this uh, talk about unity. And it's been going on. I remember in, out of the, I think a lot of it came out of Jesus' revival in the early 70s. Let's all get together and have fellowship. There's a lot of criticism about denominations and distinctions in churches and people, one, one group separating from another group. And what everybody forgot was that the Bible talks about unity of the faith. Unity is based on doctrine. Unity is not based on having some common experience of simply being saved. Unity is based on the truth. It is not at the expense of truth. And that's what gave rise to the whole ecumenical movement, which of course goes back even earlier. But evangelicals started buying into that as they became more and more experiential in the 70s. So as evangelical theology became more experientially based, everybody wanted to hold hands and talk about their experience in Jesus rather than being concerned about learning truth and learning doctrine and taking a stand on, on doctrine. But the patriarchs understood that a purpose, a sense of purpose, which is the content which derived from the Mosaic, I mean from the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, on the basis of the doctrine they were taught in the Abrahamic covenant, they had a sense of purpose and that gave them a sense of unity. And through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... They do not mingle with the people that surround them. There is this sense of, of uh, isolation from them. Now, one example that we can look at that illustrates this is in Genesis 13.5. Genesis 13.5-8 through 8 is the episode with Lot separating from Abram. There we read, now Lot, who went with Abram, or Avram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. You know, a little note there. The land could not sustain them. Now, this is a fertile area at the time. It's not 
like you may think of Israel as being relatively arid and dry, not being able to support very many crops. At that time, it was a much more humid climate and much more fertile climate. There are wealthy men. Abram has many servants, many men who work for him. Lot does too. These are two huge, successful agricultural enterprises. And so they, they have grown so much that the land can't sustain both of them. There's been some outbreaks of hostility between the people who work for each one of them. And so Abram shows grace orientation and problem solving. Notice his humility. He's got a personal problem, a little people testing, with his nephew Lot. Let's see how he solves the problem. Verse 7, There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then, once again, Moses wants to remind us of something important. Now, the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. What's the point? Here you have this outbreak of hostility and friction between believers in the land because Lot's a believer and Abram's a believer. And what is this doing to their testimony? They're living in the midst of the pagan, pagan nations and yet there's this hostility breaking out. And Abram is sensitive to that and says in verse 8 to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. In other words, his emphasis is on the family relationship and their common testimony to the pagan nations surrounding them. And so, uh, Abram exercises grace orientation in solving the problem. And he says, Lot, we can't operate in the same area, so you take your pick. You pick the land, you go east, I'll go west, you go west, I'll go east, but you take pick, the pick of the land. See his humility in the whole situation. And, of course, Lot took the land down around Sodom and Gomorrah and along the Jordan River, which was the most beautiful uh, area at that time and, and well watered, and eventually that led to his demise and his uh, destruction as he got involved with all the immorality of the uh, people in the valley, uh, along the shore there, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities. Now, this sense of purpose and unity further led them to recognize the need to live separately from the Canaanites. But this is only seen in the first three generations. They were to be in the world, but not of the world. This is illustrated in the fact that Abram did not want his son to take a wife from among the Canaanites around him. So he sent his servant Eliezer back home among his relatives at Haran to find a suitable wife for Isaac that was from his people and not one who was from among the Canaanites. Rebekah too, Isaac's wife. Isaac marries Rebekah when it's time for Jacob to take a wife. She does not want Jacob to take a wife from among the pagan culture surrounding the, the family. You see this in Genesis uh, 24.1. Abram was... Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Notice the reference to creation, how creation continuously plays a role as the backdrop for so much of this. God is the God who created the heavens and the earth. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. 
This is also true of Rebekah. Genesis 27.46 Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. These are the Hittites. Now the culture, it's kind of a, a melting pot culture in Canaan at this time. You have the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, two or three other groups, and the Hittites. But they all partake of the same common culture. They're all operating on the same fertility, worship, religious system. They're all involved in the phallic cult. They're all involved in immorality. And Rebecca, like any believer, mother, who is concerned about the spiritual welfare of her children, recognizes that as a parent, there is a real sense of failure for her if her child grows up and marries one of the pagans she runs around with, or he runs around with, and does not um, pursue spiritual maturity and is not positive to God in their own spiritual life. So she says, I'm tired of living. All the options around here for Jacob to take a wife are just these uh, pagan Hittites. And if Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? I think some of you mothers can probably relate to her um, feelings at this time. She doesn't want Jacob to marry a pagan. If so, she just thinks her life will have no meaning whatsoever. So you see among the patriarchs there is this sense of purpose, this transcendental sense of purpose that there is a greater reason for their being called out and God is doing something unique through them. So they have this sense of purpose, this sense of unity, and this sense of being kept separate and distinct from the Canaanites. But by the time we come to the fourth generation, by the time we come to Abram's great-grandchildren, you see a tremendous shift in their orientation. No longer do you have the, the descendants, the sons, being positive to God. Now we have a negative generation, a generation that is uh, caught up in self-absorption and self-indulgence, a generation that is negative to God, and a generation that is, is basically wicked, and they have lost the sense of unity, they've lost the sense of purpose, they've lost the sense of concern for one another. Remember, Abram said to Lot, you know, we are family. Let's make a decision here based on grace and humility so that we can have a, an honest testimony to the pagans around us. By the time you get to his great-grandchildren, they just really don't care anymore about God's plan and program. Look at Genesis 37.2. Genesis 37.2. We're going to take about three examples to illustrate this and to see what God is doing, how God, why. Remember the big question here that you would be asking, if you were a Jew getting ready to go into the land to conquer it, you would be asking, why did God take us out of the land in the first place? Why were we in Egypt? And what, what is God's plan for us in the future? So this is the answer to that. This is the an it's, it's more than simply to protect Jacob and his sons during the time of famine. It is that God is, does something with them in Egypt to protect them from themselves. Genesis 37.2, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. These were the handmaids, for, of course, for um, Leah and, and Rachel, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back 
a bad report about them to their father. So this isn't a sense that he's a tattletale, but obviously things are going on. We don't know what it was, but in terms of their business practices or whatever they were doing, Joseph comes back to tell Jacob that the other brothers are all evil. And this is our first hint that there is no longer any spiritual gas in the tank, so to speak, and the tire has gone flat. And there's no interest in spiritual things in this new generation. Now, there's four examples that I'm going to look at for the sons. That's all we're told about in the Scriptures, and we can extrapolate from that that perhaps the rest of them were just as bad. So the first example comes from Reuben in Genesis 35:22. Reuben in Genesis 35:22. It came about while Israel was dwelling in the land. By this time, Jacob has been renamed Israel, Israel, Prince with God. And so he becomes, that his name Israel comes to be the name by which all his descendants are known. It came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilkah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So now we have one of his pride and joy coming back and taking his concubine for his own. So we see that this is some clue as to Reuben's character and that he has no remorse. He's sexually promiscuous with what amounts to his stepmother. And this is a power play directed against his father because he is basically making a claim that I have a right to everything that you have. So it's a statement of rebelliousness. It's a rejection of the authority of his father and a rejection of everything that his father stands for. That's all we know about Reuben. Wonderful to have a son like that. Then we have an interesting episode in Genesis chapter 34 regarding Simon or Simeon and Levi. So turn to Genesis 34 and I'll just it's a lengthy story. This is not one of those stories that you normally heard about when you were in Sunday school. In fact, this is one of those chapters that whenever the uh, the liberals or the atheistic crowd gets together and decides that they're going to attack the Bible, they always pick on, on a chapter like this to show that the Bible is really awful and filled with terrible stories and it's not fit reading for children. It just shows that they miss the whole point of the passage and its whole spiritual lesson. When we read in verse 34.1, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. So now she has a daughter, one of the uh, there's one daughter, and she gets tired of living at home. She gets tired of her restricted environment. She gets tired of being separate from the culture around her, and she wants to be like all the other kids. And it sort of has a modern ring to it. And she goes out to to hang around with all the other girls. And she goes out to Shechem. And there she runs into this uh, good-looking young man, the son of Hamor the Hivite, who's the prince of the land. Not only is he good-looking, but he's got money and he's got position and his family's up there. So this uh, appeals to her uh, approbation lust and her power lust. And uh, the son of Hamor takes her and uh, lies with her. They, he procreates with her and she is basically raped, but he is so much in love with her that he wants to to marry her. So he sends and he tries to make a deal with it, get his father to make a deal 
so that she will be his wife. At those time you had, at that time you had arranged marriages. Now let's skip down to verse 11. Of course, the whole family is upset that this has happened to Dinah. It's a matter of honor, a matter of prestige. But let's see how they handle it. Remember the background. They are to be a blessing to the nations around them. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father, this is where he barters for her hand in marriage, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. So he's bargaining for the dowry here. He says in verse 12, Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Now notice how Jacob's boys handle it. They answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit. And they spoke to them because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. So they're operating on revenge, motivation, and vindictiveness. They are not going to be a blessing to Hamor's family. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. And the more we read this, the more it has a modern ring to it. It's, it's, they don't really care about spiritual things. They could care less about circumcision and its spiritual significance as far as the Abrahamic covenant is concerned. But they're going to use this now for their own purposes. And sometimes it happens today. You'll have somebody who's a Christian. They'll say, okay, I can't marry you in your, unless you're a Christian. Why don't you go to church and get baptized and then we can get married? It's all form with no reality. They just go through the ritual, go through the motions, but there doesn't have to be anything of significance behind it. So they say, what you need to do then is to get circumcised. Just go through the ritual and then everything will be okay. Now let's skip down to verse 24. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Amor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. So they made a deal. So it sort of reminds you of some of the deals that happened in the in the Middle Ages when you would have a Christian king send in a missionary to a town and say, okay, you need to be Christians or we'll wipe you out. And then they would get everybody baptized and they would be declared a Christian country after that. So they're going to get everybody circumcised, which is when you're dealing with adult males, this must have been an extremely painful circumstance. Verse 25, Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain, two of Jacob's sons, notice how they have managed to... Uh, put the entire populace of the city at a disadvantage. They have just wiped out their military capability by uh, causing this to happen to all of the men in the city. came about on the third day when they were in pain. The two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unaware and killed every male. So now you have not the blessing on the city, but the cursing of the city. They just wipe out, annihilate every man in the city. They killed Hamor, his son Shechem, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city. So now the other boys come along behind them and they loot the city for their own purposes and all in a revenge because they had defiled their sister. Verse 28, They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city, and that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth, and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, 
and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. So what we see is the deterioration of Abram's life, and now his great-grandchildren, instead of being a blessing to the nations around them, have become a cursing. They have perverted the entire institution of circumcision. Uh, it's something like this happened in the Middle Ages under Charlemagne. He attacked one German tribe, insisted upon their baptism, and then while they were being baptized, he beheaded every one of them. So it's a perversion of what is designed to be a spiritually significant ritual, circumcision. It perverts it to nothing more than an empty form, an empty ritual, and then it is utilized as a means of murder and destruction. So what we see with the, with the twelve, there's something that we no longer see again, and that is an altar. There's no altar that they build. You search in vain to see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah build an altar in the land. There's no altar. There's simply evil actions. The second thing is that there is no longer a unity in the family. They have lost their sense of purpose. Once doctrine is removed, unity collapses. There's a lack of unity in the family. They go back, they're reduced now to the same pattern as Cain and Abel, brother against brother. The vine program begins to disintegrate because of negative volition. And then third, there's no longer a care or concern about being separate from the pagan environment around them. We want to live like everybody else lives. We're going to have the same value system as the Canaanites. We want to live like they live. We want to intermarry with them. We don't want to be distinct anymore. We don't want to stand out anymore because of what we believe. And this is exemplified even more in the case of Judah in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38 is another one of those chapters that you probably didn't study when you were in Sunday school. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. Now, this chapter covers a period of 22 years. I've I've skipped over it a little bit, but what has happened among the um, during this time is you have Abraham, the seed of Isaac, Isaac, the story about the birth of Jacob and Esau, Esau selling his birthright, the mess of pottage to Isaac. All of this is the positive side, showing God's control through the family to preserve the nation and to build the nation through the regenerate son. On the other side, we see this dark picture of the negative volition within the family and its self-destruction through sinfulness. After Jacob had had his twelve sons, when Joseph is a young man, probably close to twenty, he sold into slavery to the Midianites who take him down and sell him into slavery in Egypt. During that time, it's roughly a twenty-year period, during that time, when Joseph is down in Egypt, this takes place with his brother Judah uh, back in the land. So this is a different scene illustrating to us the depravity of the family. As we read through this, we start in verse 1, it came about that at that time that Judah departed from his brother. See, it's a loss of unity. I don't want to be with you anymore. And he separates out. And he visits, he goes to... Uh, the city, the village of Adullam, he visits a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. 
and he befriends Hira, and they became become close associates. And while he is staying there with Hira, he saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So he takes her as his wife. She conceives. He gives him a son named Ur. Now, during this episode, Judah is going to have three sons, so you can just keep it straight. He has three sons. The oldest is Ur, the second is Onan, and the third is Shelah. Now, when you go through this, you discover that the deterioration of the family gets even worse. He gives birth, we read here, then uh, verse 5, she bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chaziv that she bore him. Now, that's an interesting Hebrew word. It means liar. So, the, it doesn't, the writer doesn't note where any of the others were born, but he notes this. Why? There's a pun going on here to kind of a hint that what we're going to see here is massive deception. And he's using a little play on words here. To, if you were reading this, you will get a chuckle out of it in the Hebrew. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar in verse 6. So, Tamar and Ur get married, but, but Ur, we're told, Judah's firstborn was evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 7. So, the Lord took his wife. What's going on here is that you have the infant nation Israel. And they, have be, be, they are becoming so evil by this time that God has to step in and intervene in order to protect the infant nation. You see the same dynamic take place in Acts where you have the infant church. And what happens? You have two people, a, a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and they're going to lie about how much money they're giving to the church. Now, at no other time, if you lie, if you come in here, you sell some property, and you come in and you say, I'm going to give everything I made off the property to the church, and you put some money back in the grace box in the back, God is not going to strike you dead if you're lying. But he did that with Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Because the church is in its infancy and needed to be protected. God needed to take dire measures at that time in history. He does the same thing with Israel. He takes, He intervenes and takes very strong steps in order to protect the nation from this incipient evil that is coming out through this next generation. So Ur is evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord takes him out under the sin unto death, immediately intervenes and kills him. Now Judah goes to the second son, Onan, and he says to Onan in verse 8, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law, and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is something that is totally foreign to us as a culture. It was called leveret merit, from the Latin word levere, meaning brother. And the purpose was to preserve the memory and the name and the inheritance of a, of a man who died childless. A man marries, he doesn't have children, he dies young, has no children, he still has his inheritance, his name, his family lineage. So his brother would take the wife, the widow, as his wife. They would procreate and have a child, and that child would be raised up in the name of the, of the brother who had died and would receive his inheritance and pass on his name. So there's a sense here in which it reflects the desire for immortality among people that uh, by carrying on the family name you have some sense of, of continuous life and immortality. 
Notice God does not even denigrate this practice at all. God does not treat it lightly. It's authorized even in the Mosaic Code to carry on this practice of leveret marriage. I think a second reason that leveret marriage was uh, accepted and uh, put into operation was that it, it preserved and protected the widow. This is not a time when women had careers. If they did not have a husband or a father to take care of them, they would become destitute. So this way the woman, the widow was provided for. She would be taken by the brother. She would go into his, his family, his house. She would be taken care of and provided for. I think this is also one reason why polygamy was tolerated by God during this time is because it was a way to provide for the protection and preservation of a, of a, of widows and for women who were, would otherwise have no means of support in the culture. Now, one of the things we should note here is that there is a divine purpose for sex. This is background to understanding and interpreting this passage. There is a divine purpose for sex. God created sex for the pleasure of the human race, for man and woman to be part of marriage. It was in the Garden of Eden. It was before the fall. Sex has nothing to do with sin. It just gets tainted after the fall because of man's sin nature. But God invented sex and designed sex for the human race for their pleasure. And it is part of love. Now, love is not a self-centered thing. Love is other-centered. And in sex, there is a concern for the partner within the bonds of marriage. When it's outside the bonds of marriage, then sex becomes a self-centered thing. This is what destroys it. It becomes a focus of just personal pleasure. This is the background for understanding what goes on in this episode with, with Onan. See, it says in verse 9 that Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. It's not my kid. I don't care. You see the breakdown of family concern. He's, he's not concerned about his brother. He's not concerned about raising up a family. In the name of his brother, he is just totally self-absorbed and self-indulgent. So when he jumps into his wife, he um, wasted his feet on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. So he interrupts the sexual activity so that there will not be a, a descendant come from this union because he's totally self-serving. He's just there for self-gratification and he is not at all concerned about the family. So what is the result? The result is when he what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord in verse 10, so God took his life also. See, it's a complete breakdown of the family into self-indulgence, self-absorption, arrogance, and rejection of God. And in order to protect the infant nation, God is having to intervene and take each one of these kids out under divine discipline. Now we have one boy left, Shua. Now Shua is much younger, and uh, Tamar is still a widow, and she doesn't have anyone to take care of her. So, and, But Jacob's not a fool. Jacob sits back, and of course he's not thinking doctrinally. Jacob has a problem. His sons are dropping like flies, and rather than analyzing the situation from a doctrinal perspective and saying, well, there must be some sin going on here, and we've got a, a, a totally carnal dynamic operating within the family, so the solution's a spiritual solution, he just blames Tamar. She's the problem. So he makes a decision that uh, not to give Shua to Tamar. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, uh, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time morning... Uh, wait a minute. Skip the passage. Verse 11. 
Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. I'm afraid that he... But he's thinking. See, this is the divine perspective here. We get to know what's really going on. He tells her, look, when he gets a little older, you can marry Sheila. But what he's really thinking is, if Sheila marries her, he's dead. I'm not going to do it. So he is self-consciously deceiving her. Tamar goes in and lives in her father-in-law's house. But she is being maltreated by him. And she is not getting what she deserves and totally in line with the culture. And so then we have a very interesting episode take place where... We read in verse 12, After a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. So now he's a widower. And when the time was, of mourning was ended, Judah went up to, with his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira the Edulamite. So the two men are now going to go party on the town a little bit. And it was told to Tamar that your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now what she does is to disguise herself. She takes off her normal clothes and she covers herself up, puts on a veil so she won't be recognized. And she sits on the roadway outside the gate going into the town. This is normally where the temple prostitutes, the Kadashah, would sit. The word Kadashah is from the root Kadash, which means holy, but it also means to be set apart to the service of God. So the temple prostitutes were set apart to the service of Baal in the um, fertility worship. And so she sits outside the gate waiting for Judah to come along, and then she seduces him. Now, in the process of seducing him, she asked him for some tokens to indicate his, his, his uh, concern for her and sort of payment for, for their um, uh, sex. And then he leaves. Now, after he leaves, he needs to get his stuff back. He sends his friend Hira to look for it. She, he can't find her anywhere. The people in the town say, no, there was no temple prostitute out there. And he just forgets about it. Then, when we come down to, to about verse... Uh, let me see. Go down to about verse 24. It was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter in law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child. So pregnancy reveals that she has uh, had illicit sex, and Judah says, Well, bring her out and let her be burned. He's going to execute judgment, but when she comes out, she says, Hmm, I wonder who this stuff belongs to. And she pulls out his stuff, and he immediately recognizes what he has done. And in verse 26, And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Sheila. See, that was his responsibility under their custom and their law. He should have given Sheila to her to take care of, uh, of her and to fulfill the leveret marriage position. And then she goes ahead and has children. So in the picture of all of this, we see the total collapse of family unity and their distinction from the culture around them. They are operating just like all of the pagans around them. Now, why is it? Let's go back to our original question and answer it. Why is it that God took them down to Egypt? He did this in order to protect them from themselves. They have now become assimilated into the culture. They're not any different from the Canaanites around them. And God has to preserve them in order to protect His program. See, even though men go negative, it doesn't jeopardize God's plan. He is always going to take care of His plan, and He's still going to deal with them in grace. He does not judge them, but He provides a solution. Now, what's been going on in the background is Joseph is down in Egypt, and he's been elevated to the position of prime minister, the vizier, the second in command, and he has 
plenty of food down there. So God moves the family down there. And the reason is the nature of Egyptian culture. Now, Egyptian culture was very segregated. Not that I approve of segregation or racial segregation or anything like that, and not that the Bible is supporting that. That's not, that can't be derived from the passage. But God is going to use their segregationist practice, their racism in Egypt, in order to protect the Jews. The problem is they're to be separate from those around them, and they're not. They're marrying those around them, raising up children. They're being assimilated into the pagan culture. And so God's going to take them down to Egypt where they will be uh, protected because of the Egyptians' prejudice and their uh, segregationist and racist practices. If you look at Genesis 43:32, we get a hint of this when uh, Joseph's brothers come to Joseph. It says, so they, they, they have dinner. It's a big banquet. And we read, so they served him by himself. That is, Joseph is eating by himself at one table and them, the brothers, by themselves at another table. See, he hasn't revealed himself to them at this point. They still don't know who he is. And then the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, they won't even eat at the same table as Joseph and the brothers because they're not Egyptians. Now, if they won't sit down and eat at the same table with them, they're not going to have sex with them and they're not going to marry them. That's the point. The Egyptians don't want to have anything to do with these Semites coming out of uh, the Middle East. They will keep them distinct. We read further, they ate by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. They did not want to have anything to do at all with the Hebrews. And then later, we see Joseph's concern. Joseph tries to bring back family unity. That's the whole idea behind the story where he sends him back to get Benjamin and to bring Benjamin. He's trying to resurrect in the brothers a sense of family concern, family loyalty. He's trying to bring unity back to the family. And then he understands the spiritual dynamics that are going on. And when he goes, when they're going to have their interview with the Pharaoh, this is what he tells his father. Because when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live, and, and, and Joseph says, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So he says, what I want you to do is not only do they not like us racially and they have this racial prejudice, but if you tell them we're shepherds, shepherds are on the bottom of the social strata, so if you tell them that the family is shepherds, then they're going to stick us out in, in Goshen and they're going to leave us alone. But we'll have food, shelter, and clothing, and we'll be protected and it is in that environment then that God places the descendants of Abram in order to protect them and to build the nation. So we see in all of this that God's grace continues, His program continues, despite the sinfulness of man, despite our failures, despite our rejection of Him, God continues to exercise His initiative of grace and one thing we learn from this, that no matter how much we fail God, no matter how bad it might be, no matter how miserable, miserable it might be, if we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life. God still has grace toward us, and we can recover fellowship with Him and move forward in the spiritual life. And that's the lesson that we learn from this whole section in Genesis, is that God's plan is never dependent upon us, but God's grace is always there to restore us despite what the failures, the sins, whatever happens in our own life.
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that we can look at this and see the trends in in Genesis and how You provided and protected for Abraham and his descendants and how You set them apart to be a special and unique nation. We see their failures. We see all of the misery that came from that. And we still see your, Your remarkable, infinite grace always providing a solution. Father, we thank You for the grace in our lives that You sent Your Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins that we could have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. Just as Your grace took care of the Jews, Your grace has taken care of us in providing salvation. It's not a matter of our work. It's a matter of Your work. You sent Your Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So right now, all you have to do to secure your salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't involve works. It doesn't involve moral reformation. It doesn't involve joining a church. It simply means that you put your faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us remember the things that we have studied and be challenged by them. In Jesus' name, amen.